So Money Episode 72, Lynette Kalfani-Cox. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey everyone, welcome back to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Today's show focuses on how to pick the right college, how to pick the right graduate school, how to make it affordable. You know, I went to Penn State undergrad, and then following that, I went to Columbia University for the Graduate School of Journalism, and I was fortunate that I graduated from college debt-free, but then to go to grad school, I took out about $25,000 in student loans. It was a 10-month program, and for me, that was so much money, especially for somebody who was going to enter the journalism world, where, as we know, it's not exactly a super lucrative track, at least not in the beginning. And, uh, but fast forward to today, I just read an article that my program that cost me roughly $25,000, $30,000 all those years ago, this was probably like 12 years ago, today, guess how much? Just take a guess. $93,000 for 10 months. Are you kidding me? I mean, I loved my program. There's no way that I would spend that much money to go through that and, actually believe that I would be able to pay that off comfortably. I I can't imagine if there's actually students out there that are going to the Columbia School of Journalism, where, by the way, I went and I loved it. And I I think the program there is outstanding. But you've got to be kidding me if you're going to expect a student to pay that. Or you've got to be kidding me if you're the student who is paying that. It's going to be tough. And I'm probably going to hear from you in in a couple months when asking me how to, you know, refinance that loan. I'm not sure I'm going to have a lot of advice for you. But uh, I digress. Can you tell this is getting me a little heated? This is getting me a little angry. But I wanted to bring on a guest today who could help us. So I get so many questions from listeners who are either dealing with student loans or I hear from parents who are worried about sending their kids off to college and affording it, or I hear from students who are worried about how much to borrow. Lynette Kalfani-Cox is our guest today, and she is the founder of themoneycoach.net and a New York Times bestselling author who's got a new book out right now called College Secrets, How to Save Money, Cut College Costs, Graduate Debt-Free. Uh, yes, please. She's here with us today to dispel misconceptions about college and to share some important advice on how to make school affordable for you, your child, your family. Now, before launching themoneycoach.net back in 2003, Lynette actually worked for nearly a decade as a Dow Jones Newswire reporter, as well as a Wall Street Journal reporter for CNBC, and she covered business and personal finance news. And Lynette has a really, really fascinating personal story when it comes to money that I wanted her to share with us and to be open uh, with us about, because I think uh, that in and of itself is quite the lesson. Three takeaways from our interview with Lynette. One, five, five financial options that you should consider before applying for student loans. You know, a lot of people think you got to go straight for those loans. Also, she talks about what criteria determine the best school for you. And hint, it's not about the brand name. And the number one financial habit that makes a huge difference in Lynette's marriage. Yeah. Without further ado, here is the lovely Lynette Kalfani-Cox. 
Lynette, welcome to So Money. Such an honor to have you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, I've known you for several years. I've we've crossed paths oftentimes in the green rooms of various TV shows. I I I love your books. I love your voice. I love your story, Lynette. I mean, for many listeners here on the podcast, many know who you are and some are maybe for the first time learning about you. So, I would love for you to share a little bit about your personal journey to becoming the money coach. And it's a uh, it's I love this story because it's kind of like, you know what? My name's Lynette and I've been there. I've done that. I know how it feels to not have your finances together, but you survived and you thrived. So take us down memory lane a little bit and share with us how you became Lynette Calthani Fox, the money coach. Sure. You know, sometimes I wonder if I should like maybe change it a little bit. It might sound like, okay, I'm a recovering alcoholic or I'm a a recovering spendaholic, but I, I don't know. But you know, I guess a lot of people who do know my story know that perhaps I'm probably best known for talking and writing a lot about credit and debt issues. And, you know, I was one of those people who um, really didn't learn about money management and personal finances at all until I was, you know, certainly into my uh, late 20s, early 30s. And, um you know, I, w- I went to college uh, in California, University of California, Irvine, and I remember just walking into my dorm room. Um, the bed had no sheets or, you know, comfort or anything on it, but it did have a whole bunch of credit card applications. <laughs> and it was almost as if that was the start, you know. Um, and in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm an adult. I'm, I'm 18. I can get a credit card. And so, and I did. And boy, did I ever get credit card after credit card after credit card. And so, you know, I was in debt in college. Um, I married very young uh, in my early 20s. And then uh, I moved from Los Angeles to uh, Philadelphia. And I started, you know, working as a journalist in in Philly. I was working at the Philadelphia Inquirer by day and at Fox, the 10 o'clock news by night. And uh, my husband, my ex-husband now, (laughs) um, was a student, you know, at Penn. And so really I was the only one working um, in the family and, uh, you know, just long, long story short, you know, two kids came around and, um, sort of a longer term marriage. We were, we were ultimately married for 13 years, but, you know, we got into debt together. Um, and it seems like it was just almost, you know, little by little, just overnight, but it was really just a lot of crazy spending, to be honest. And I now know that people get into debt because of two reasons. One is that they are either in that sort of classic overspender, you know, managing their money poorly kind of category. And that frankly was me. Or they fall in victim to circumstances in their lives. You know, what, what I call the dreaded D's. They've been downsized, divorced, had a death in the family of the main breadwinner, or have had some kind of disability or disease to befall them. And, and any of that can obviously throw your finances out of whack. So, you know, I went through my 20s and, and really right up to early 30s just being in debt because I was mismanaging my finances and I was overspending in, in many ways of my, you know, in many categories of my life. So I did some things, you know, right. I had life insurance and disability protection. I had a 401k. And um, after 9-11, uh, 
Uh, I created a will. It, it scared me so much. Um, but when it came to the spending, it was it was really out of control. So, you know, one day I kind of just said, "Ugh, enough's enough." Um, and and it's not like I had some some great epiphany or a wake up call or <laughs> I, I didn't have to sort of hit rock bottom. Um, it was probably more embarrassment maybe than anything else um, in the sense that I was maxed out. I, I couldn't get any more lines of credit. I couldn't get new credit cards. I couldn't get my creditors to raise my credit limits. And I was tired of being, you know, embarrassed and declined, you know, sort of at a restaurant, at a store, putting your charge card up there and, and just sort of praying, oh, I hope this goes through, you know. So um, at that point, when I was totally maxed out, I was like, OK, there's got to be a better way. Um, so I started, you know, to tally up all of my debts and I found that when I did, I had a hundred thousand dollars in credit card debt alone. Um, I set about doing a number of things to try to pay it off. And fortunately I was able to pay it all off in three years. I never missed a single payment. And then I wrote this book about it called Zero Debt, The Ultimate Guide to Financial Freedom. Uh, and it became a New York Times bestseller, a Business Week bestseller, uh, Essence Magazine bestseller, and did really well. Uh, and you know, obviously we've done subsequent editions of it, et cetera. But that was sort of the, the turning point for me. And that was back in 2001 when I started chipping away at the debt. And then in, uh, by 2004, I'd paid it all off. Um, and so part of the shift for me um, happened professionally and personally. So at the time, I was actually a Wall Street Journal reporter for CNBC. Um, <laughs> You're a shopaholic. You're that woman. <laughs> I've seen the movie. <laughs> and the, the crazy thing is, though, Farnoosh, I wasn't really, and, and maybe some, this is the part of me that wants to justify it, but I, I wasn't truly the shopaholic in the sense that um, I was getting the designer clothes or the handbags or the purses and the shoes. I mean, literally, you, you really can ask anybody, and that's just kind of not my style and my thing. Um, I would do things like buy a ton of stuff for the kids, and, and then justify it. I would take trips whenever I wanted. Passion, one of my passions is travel. And I would, you know, put something on a credit card and worry about how I was going to pay for it later. Um, when my older two kids were literally five and three, I had them in a very expensive private school. They're now 17 and 15 and in public school doing just fine, <laughs> thank goodness. Um, but when they were five and three, I had them in a very expensive, you know, private school. And I'm talking, you know, $20,000 a year back then. And um, again, I justified it because in my family, part of the the, the background, the uh, work ethic and the sort of culture is that, you, you know, education above all and at any cost and you sacrifice for your kids. So how did I pay for that $20,000 a year uh, private school for my kids? Oh, I just used my lines of credit. Visa. So, <laughs> exactly. So I was doing, I was making poor choices. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, but I was still overspending. Um, my ex was a, 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 um, a gadget geek and who loved things and technology. And so when he wanted stuff, we just got that as well. And, you know, so it adds up, it catches up with you. You know, even if you think that you're really not sort of um, that classic overspender who's, you know, hitting the mall every day. Um, if you're spending more than you earn, you'll always be broken in debt. And right. so I've, I've since learned 
that there is no level of income that can't be outspent. You know, I was making a six-figure salary, but I was spending, frankly, um, as if I was earning seven figures, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or close to it, you know. So um, part of what I, I think that people need to understand when it comes to sort of getting in debt or maybe getting out of debt is that you really do have to have the right mindset to know that you don't have to participate in and do what everybody else is doing. Um, you don't have to justify the things that you choose not to participate in if that means that it's going to keep your family out of debt or keep your spending habits in alignment with your own personal goals and your own sort of family needs. But I think that previously I was like, oh, I like it. I want it. Let's do it. And I didn't give it a second thought. Or I was like, well, everybody does this. Everybody sends their kids to private school and everybody, you know, so it, without really thinking through some of the, the ramifications. So, so now my oldest daughter, who's 17 and is a senior in high school, um, will in fact be heading off to college in the fall. And um, I don't want for her what I experienced. Um, I mentioned that I went to UC Irvine undergrad, and then I went to private school, to graduate school at, at USC, University of Southern California. I came out of school with $40,000 in, in student loan debt, and that was back in 1993. Wow. Which is the equivalent of probably six figures today. Oh, absolutely. Very, very easily. Um, and I'm determined <laughs> that my kids are not going to have student loans um, because I know the pressure that it puts on you. And I know how it took me over 15 years to pay off mine and how it's 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 just sort of a, a monkey on your back. So but of course, all of her schools are very expensive there. Uh, none is is under fifty thousand dollars. And most that she's looking at and has been accepted to thus far are in the 60 to sixty five thousand dollars per year mm-hmm. range. So fortunately, you have a book <laughs> to help yourself and others through this. So I just want to uh, uh, brag about you for a second here because you, you know, obviously your very first book kind of launched your career to new to new heights, uh, zero debt, New York Times bestseller. Since then, you've gone on to write a, a total of twelve books. Your latest is College Secrets: How to Save Money, Cut College Costs, Graduate Debt Free, and then you have a kind of a, a sister book to that for teens, right? That's correct. The companion book in the series is called College Secrets for Teens, Money-Saving Ideas for the Pre-College Years, because anybody who's a parent knows that you don't just start spending money when you write a tuition check when your kid goes (laughs) off to college. There's a lot of money that's spent, uh, frankly, in the the thousands and thousands, even before your kid gets a college acceptance letter on, you know, SAT and ACT testing, college tours and visits, uh, prep work, pre-college programs, the list goes on and on. But really just what I want to say about my daughter, who's now, you know, just on the verge of going off to college is that for me and for our family, um, public school was actually a great option. We live in a great uh, neighborhood, which has excellent schools. My daughter has done phenomenally well. She's that, you know, that, that kind of standout kid who's a, you know, national merit scholar, AP scholar, you know, the, 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 the sort of ideal kid in terms of packaging and a great variety of interests. And she did just great in, in public school. And I do believe that her private school gave her a great foundation and, you know, was money well spent uh, ultimately. However, part of what I see is that, okay, I would have had a lot more money in the 529 plan 
had I not went into debt for the private school and had I perhaps thought about a different option and saving some of that for college <laughs> for what it really matters a, a little bit more. Right. So, you know, these are difficult choices, of course. And, and all of us as parents, we're, we're thinking through strategically what's best for our own families. So, but what I'm saying is that for me, I, there actually was a less expensive option and um, a, an option that, you know, would have been just fine. And, and so I really only raised that in the context of, of talking about choices and about the mindset and about being smarter when you think through decisions as opposed to saying, well, everybody does this. And, it, you know, and of course it has to be this way. Um, because it, it, it doesn't have to be. It, you really have to make some of these, you know, very individualized and sometimes kind of nuanced choices. And college is one of those decisions that sort of creeps up on you. You know it's happening. You've been looking right. forward to sending your child to college. Your child's been looking forward to going away to school. However, it's always sticker shock. And a lot of parents and children find themselves stuck where they've applied to schools now. They're the acceptance letters are in and they're realizing, oh my goodness, how am I going to pay for this? And so often they think the only way to do it is to take out student loans. What would you say to a family right now that's in that predicament? They're all about, you know, now it's springtime, we're getting the acceptance letters, uh, you're about to choose a school. How do you make that choice wisely, not just from a, you know, where, where should I go, where I'm going to get the best education, but how can I make this affordable for for all of us uh, so that we don't, as I say, start off life after college behind the financial eight ball because you've got, you know, 80, 90, $100,000 in student loans? Great question. And I think in an ideal world, you know, obviously you'd save early and often and, and, you know, but if things have crept up on you, as you suggested, and for most people, that is absolutely the case, then I think you still can be smart about your choices. Um, so many people have um, this brand name mentality where they feel like, oh, Ivy League or bust, or it has to be a, a Stanford, MIT, um, you know, um, University of Chicago level school, a very excellent, credible, you know, just a school that we've all heard of type of thing without recognizing that, A, you know, there's 2,500 plus um, colleges, four-year universities, uh, co colleges and universities in America um, in the a nonprofit category alone, where many, many hundreds of them are quite excellent schools. So one is don't be guided simply by the concept and the notion that I have to go and or put my kid into the quote unquote very best school. Um, you can certainly do that, but if you are a family who can't afford to pay for that school and if you haven't gotten the financial resources or the aid from the school that would make it financially feasible for you, then you just really going to be resigned to, to, to borrowing and probably at very high levels. You know, we know that student loan debt in America stands at above $1.2 trillion. And the typical college grad from the class of 2014 came out of school with over $33,000 in student loan debt. So first, I think you have to be smart about choice and to recognize that you should try to look for the best fit overall for your kid, the best academic fit, the best financial fit, and even the best social fit. So before you go to student loans, I always suggest that families look at five other options. Uh, scholarships, grants, paid 
internships, work study, and then the family's own resources outside of the parents. So some people might have a, a, a wealthy uncle or a nice grandparent who's willing to kick in, you know, to, to, to pay for books or to pay a semester's worth of tuition or, or whatever. But don't forget about the scholarship and grant process. I feel like students should sort of make that a little quasi full-time or part-time job, especially during like spring break and stuff <laughs> like that. They should put in some sweat equity to apply for for scholarships and grants. My mother-in-law uh, chased my husband around the house when he was 17 to, to, to fill out scholarships. <laughs> and guess what? He got them. He didn't exactly. think he would qualify, but he got a, probably a semester's worth of tuition paid for that way. Right. And and so many uh, families think, oh, we're not going to qualify for aid. Well, listen, um, don't ever rule yourself out. I don't care how much money you make. Um, certainly, you know, I had folks from Columbia, you know, one of the, the eight Ivy League schools, when they have a, um, a, a generous uh, need-based policy, um, to, to, to tell me and, you know, many other parents who were, who were there as well, that in some instances, families making up to $200,000, $250,000 can still be eligible for aid. So what typically happens is somebody, you know, who's better off in terms of from an income standpoint who has a $100,000, $125,000, a year household income, they just think, oh, I'm not going to qualify. Why should I fill out the FAFSA, the, the free application for federal student aid? But no, you really should, because even to qualify for certain scholarships or even to demonstrate to a school that you um, are eligible for need-based aid, you have to fill out things like the FAFSA or the CSS profile, which is another a form that a lot of uh, private schools mostly require. So do fill out those forms. Do consider other sources of funding and don't consider loans as your default position. One of the things that I discovered in, in, in taking two years to write um, the, the two books in the College Secret series and in going all around the country with my daughter, looking at schools, talking to financial aid officers, families, students, et cetera, is that when the decision comes to pay for school and if a family feels like they're short, ironically, many of them will just say, oh, well, we don't have the money. We have to take out loans. It's almost as if the loan is the default position. It's the first choice and it really should be the last choice. So recognize that there are other options available. Some uh, parents work at places where um, there's specific scholarships and aid for the dependence of the employee. So you might want to look into, into that as well. And then if you absolutely do have to borrow, if you've exhausted those other options that I mentioned in terms of getting scholarships and grants and paid internships, which I didn't emphasize, but um, kids have to get into the right mindset nowadays, young college students, to know that it's not like when I was in school and I, I could afford to, I had an internship with an ABC affiliate in Florida. I, it was an unpaid internship. Because you wanted, you know, at the time, the experience, the contacts, the um, sense to know whether or not this was truly something I wanted to pursue from a career standpoint. And it was great. And I loved it. And I, I, it did help solidify my career choice. And I ultimately got a, a master's degree in broadcast journalism. But nowadays, my, if my daughter wanted to do an internship, it'd have to be a paid internship. Yes, 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 you can't yes. Or to spend 20 hours a week, 15 hours a week and not get paid um, because of the, the, you know, exorbitant cost of college in, in, in many places. So if you do have to get loans, 
federal loans first right. before you go to the private loan market. The federal student loans are going to have better loan forgiveness and forbearance options, lower interest rates, lower fees, what they call origination fees, and just generally a lot more flexibility to work with you if you have problems down the road and you need to you know, be able to um, get a more flexible payment plan or to, to um, work out something if, if you are unemployed and, and things of that nature. Well, I am so happy that you wrote this book. I wish that parents uh, who... I, what I wish for parents is that if you have a child who's five years old, six years old, seven years old, Absolutely. get schooled on this. It's not the time to learn. Although you can, of course, incorporate some secrets and some strategies your senior year of your daughter's senior year. But it is so much more impactful if you can get a head start to just get educated on what's available and the resources. You do not have to take out uh, you know, $200,000 in private loans to send your kid to school. What's your financial philosophy, Lynette? What's a money mantra that you live by? Now I can tell you unequivocally, it's about having a zero debt mindset. And for me, that is a recognition of the fact that in many cases, it's easy to get out of debt. It can be a struggle to get out of debt. But the most challenging thing of all is to not get back into debt. It's so very easy. You know, people say, oh, my God, you paid off $100,000 in, in, in credit card debt. And, you know, back in 2004, you were done with it. And they act as if that was the finish line and that that was the, the end of it. No, the, the struggle has been to stay out of debt, you know, to, to, to maintain that um, year after year and to try to, you know, be smart with your choices. So I guess for me, the, the, the philosophy, if, it, if there's one, is about... Um, just making wise choices and recognizing how micro decisions matter and how it all sort of rolls up into one. Because it's easy to think, oh, okay, Netflix is only $7.99 a month. And I'm not, you know, saying anything against Netflix. I personally have Netflix. But I recognize that that, you know, $8 charge means, you know, $96 for the for the year, which really for us as a family means, okay, we're going to spend some extra <laughs> because we're going to order some other movies. And, um, and that is one of 35, you know, line items. And then when you add all the expenses in any given month, it all truly does add up. So you can't just make, you know, decisions without considering the totality of your personal finances and thinking about it in a holistic way, you know, um, I'm going to be doing the, the Dr. Oz show uh, this week talking about some, some of the connections between health and wealth, just because you have to recognize that financial stress impacts your health. So again, we're moving beyond money alone. Um, you probably heard Farnoosh um, earlier uh, in, in February 2015, APA, uh, the American uh, Psychological Association, came out with a study saying that the number one stress in Americans' lives is financial stress. And so um, certainly we all have family stresses. Some people have relationship stress, career stress, stress with their kids, you know, juggling uh, parental responsibilities. If you have aging parents, a whole bunch of things you can put in the, you know, just commuting to work for a lot of people is, is a big stress. But the fact that so many Americans have money woes and money worries, it impacts those other areas of their lives. It means that they're more likely to argue with their spouses or their significant others about money. 
they're um, more likely to be short and kind of snap at their kids and, 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 and not have the level of patience. They're more likely to have higher absentee rates and to be a little distracted on the job. They're more likely to have anxiety, worry, headaches, sleepless nights, that, you know, kind of stress pit, that feeling in the pit of your stomach. So getting your money right matters well beyond saying, oh, I have X amount of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions or whatever it might be in the bank. It's about having financial freedom to make the choices you want. It's about having uh, a more stress-free life in what is increasingly a very stressful world. And it's ultimately about feeling like you're in control of things as well so that things don't feel so, you know, out of whack. And because it's stressful when you feel like, oh, I'm living paycheck to paycheck and right. things aren't going well. You make the connection between a finan- being financially fit and healthy. And as we know, being healthy requires habits. What are some habits that you have acquired that you practice to ensure that your money is where it needs to be, Lynette? Well, one of the habits that I've acquired, and it's really, frankly, been through my marriage to my husband, we we got married in in 2007, um, has been an extreme amount of cooperation and communication about finances. I happen to be a married person. Obviously, not all your listeners will be married. But um, I, I told you that I was previously married, and that's when I was in debt. And then I got remarried in 2007. Um, not only do I talk about money, you know, obviously as a money coach to my clients and, and, you know, things of that nature. And when I do, you know, speaking engagements or whatever, but my husband and I, people are like, oh my gosh, it's like, we obviously work together in business. We, we co-own a a financial education company together, but then personally in our personal lives, we spend an extraordinary amount of time talking about financial matters. We talk about our retirement plans. We talk about our kids' college education. And again, all of these are tied to our goals in life, which we recognize have a cost attached to them. Um, we talk about our family members, our aging parents, and about our financial responsibility there. We talk about financial boundaries <laughs> with family members uh, who you know, ask for things, that kind of stuff. Um, we talk about our travel plans. Again, that has a, a, a cost attached to it. Um, and that's very different than what I experienced in my previous marriage, where, frankly, a lot of issues were just totally swept under the rug, where there was not this sort of constant checking in, connecting and talking and communicating about money matters. I think for many couples, the the strategy, and it may not be a conscious strategy, it may just be sort of a let me not make waves or let's not have an argument about it. So they'll avoid the money talks. (laughs) So for us, there's no one big money talk. It's like a constant stream of conversation just to stay, you know, connected and to to make sure we're we're on the same page. So that's been one thing that I found personally and professionally has been very healthy and gratifying. We don't always agree. We don't always see everything the same way, but we, we recognize that we can have patience and kind of give it time. Another thing that I've uh, done in terms of uh, managing my own spending habits is to recognize that we are human and that a lot of our choices are actually guided by emotion and impulse as opposed to, you know, sort of higher level thinking. Logic. Exactly. Logic. Like from a budgeting standpoint, I know I should not do this or I know that I should do this. 
So why am I going ahead and doing something that I know I shouldn't do? Or why am I not doing something that I know I should be doing? That's really about emotion and other things. Um, it's not a lack of information or knowledge. It's not, you know, it's really that some some emotional impulse is is at work um, or some emotions are just sort of driving the process. Like, you know, seven out of 10 Americans in this country don't adults don't have a will. Um, all of us recognize that we all are going to pass away at some point. We're, we're going to die. But why the procrastination? Why the um, refusal to do something that's a basic financial precaution to, to, to put something in place? I think some of it is because emotionally it's, it's a hard conversation to have to think about, you know, oh, if you have minor children, who should you pick as custodian or guardian for your kids? That's some deep and serious stuff, you know. Um, so for me, one of the things that I do to manage my own sort of impulses when they, when they pop up or to, um, just make better choices is to recognize that how I feel today could really and truly change in the future. And I, I don't just mean 30 days from now or three months or three years from now. For me, I mean literally tomorrow. I, I might, and I'm not a person who just flip flops all over the place and just says, "Okay, I want to make this like I want to go buy a second home, a major decision." But then tomorrow, I'll say, "No, I don't want to buy a second home." If I if I'm going to articulate that, um, I'm, chances are, I you know, it's been a thought out process. But in my marriage, what I can tell you, one of the things that Earl and I have done to help uh, maintain financial peace, because we know each other's patterns and habits and behaviors is that we don't, uh, when we have a thought or an idea, it may just be just something in passing or an impulse, you know, that you just sort of thought about. So when we want to come to each other with, you know, sort of important money matters and we're not hundred percent committed to it, or we don't know, we haven't thought it through and we haven't done the research or whatever. We have an expression that we say, we say, honey, I want to talk to you about something. Here's how I feel today. The here's how I feel today is an important verbal clue for us because we're telling the other party that I could change my mind. And I don't mean 30 days from now, three months or three years. I could change my mind tomorrow. So don't hold me to this and don't run off and do this. That was actually most helpful for me because when my husband would tell me things like, oh, I'm tired. I need, a, I need a break or a vacation. I would be the person who's like, oh, he's tired. He's overworked. I would like be booking <laughs> that day or by the next day I'd say, here, honey, you know, and, um, and, and especially when we first got married, the first five years or so, we, we traveled because we both love travel. We traveled a, a, you know, kind of a ridiculous amount. I mean, like four times a year out of the country, stuff like that. And so when our daughter, who is now in elementary school, started, you know, kindergarten, we were like, OK, I guess we can't really you know, take her on, on all these trips and, you know, be gone all the time too. And we started thinking more like, okay, we should do more aggressive savings for um, the two older kids as well for college, stuff like that. We should put more aside for our retirement. So when he would say things, he would, we, we had an agreement that we developed, which was, he, he was, he knows me in other words, and he knows that on impulse, I'll go book something. So he would say, Ooh, I'm really tired, honey. And, you know, so here's, how, but here's how I'm feeling today. You know, maybe we should think about this for, for spring break, or maybe we should do that. But, but he knows that that's the verbal clue to me to say, 
don't go off and do something. <laughs> don't go off and spend a ton of money and do this immediately because let's talk it through. Let's think about it. And, and frankly, I may change my mind um, at X point in the future. That's so important, so inspiring. And I think that uh, whether it's your married partner or your living partner, you know, a lot of times people aren't even getting married these days, but the same financial kind of relationship applies. You know, if you're going to be mingling your, your, your finances together, sharing goals, so important. I love that you keep the conversation fluid and it's not just, you know, a knee jerk reaction to some catastrophe or big decision that you have to suddenly make. We are almost wrapped here, Lynette. You've been such a thought-provoking guest. Um, I love the work that you're doing, especially more recently with college students and their families. So important. This is sort of the, the, the cap to the interview. Really, really fun, rapid-fire questions. Actually, really, really fun, rapid-fire sentences that I would like for you to finish. Okay. <laughs> first thing that comes to your mind, sort of a stream of consciousness. But the So the first one is, if I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is? Um, pay off my remaining mortgage balance and look for a house in Costa Rica. Nice. And you can get a pretty nice one for not much in Costa Rica. One of my favorite places. <laughs> the one thing I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better is? Huh, that makes my life easier or better. I am totally stumped on that one. You know, this is funny because before I would have said my nanny. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it would have been. But now I can't say that. The last three years with Alexis, um, huh. I was going to say maybe my 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 um, monthly or or bi-monthly hair appointments. There so, you go. <laughs> which saves me time, uh, effort, and, and, and energy. I, I just did my daughter Alexis's hair um, on Sunday, and she has like this uh, 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 huge, you know, long, thick, curly hair. And she was like, Mommy, can I have my hair? Can you use the, the flat iron and straighten it and curl <laughs> it? And so and it's a massive amount of time. And I've taken her with me even to the salon. But um, she asked me personally to do it, so of course I did it. But um, it did make me appreciate that um, having somebody else to do it, it <laughs> cuts down on the work and the time involved. So I hear that. For myself, I would say maybe going my trips to the to the hair salon. Okay, that's a good one. I actually had some guests tell me that she loves her weekly blowouts, you know, because, again, it saves her time, and then she just feels good for the rest of the week. Absolutely. And then finally, I'm so money because... I'm a personal finance geek and I love talking about money. To me, it's not boring. It's not drudgery. It's actually fun. And I think it just enhances my life in so many ways. I'd love to geek out with you anytime, Lynette, on oh, the show thanks. or in real life. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, folks, the book is called College Secrets, How to Save Money, Cut College Costs and Graduate Debt Free. Lynette, thanks so much. You're so welcome, Farnoosh, and keep up the great work. It really is fabulous what you're doing. Thank you. That is a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Lynette, please visit her website. Again, that's themoneycoach.net. You can also follow her on Twitter at themoneycoach. Also, check out her recent book. It's called College Secrets, How to Save Money, Cut College Costs, and Graduate Debt-Free. We've got all this info at SoMoneyPodcast.com, and there you can also find the transcript and comments from this episode and all other episodes. And as always, I want to hear from you. Please submit your question about money, work, life, guests at SoMoneyPodcast.com, and there's a really good chance, really good chance, that I'm going to answer it this weekend or at the latest, the following weekend. And now if you love what you're hearing and you want the podcast to continue, please 
do me a favor. This is one favor I ask of my listeners. Um, If they have a couple of minutes and you love the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. It is one of the most powerful ways to support this podcast. Of course, listening helps and downloading helps and sharing it with your friends goes a very, very long way. But actually leaving a review, uh, it's, it's incredibly impactful because what it does, it helps to keep this podcast you know, out of obscurity, kind of you know, still in the limelight and getting good placement in the iTunes store so that I can benefit from organic foot traffic, organic growth in the iTunes store. So if you do that, I thank you in advance. And please let me know when you do leave a review because I like to give one reviewer every week a free 15-minute money session with me. So leave the review, email me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. Let me know you left the review and I will go to draw one name every week and announce the winner on the Saturday podcast. So thanks in advance for doing that. Thanks for tuning in today. Thank you to Lynette again, my guest. And hey guys, I hope your day is so money.